Powerhouse isn't usually a word associated with literary adaptations, but it's a term that aptly describes the partnership of Ismail Merchant and James Ivory. Though their films have been occasionally dismissed as establishment works and overly nostalgic, their approaches to E.M. Forster novels like A Room with a View, Morris, and Howard's End, all scripted by Ruth Proward Jabla, appreciate and incorporate their source material's nuances and social critiques. In anticipation of the theatrical run of the newly restored Howard's End, I spoke with Michael Koreski and Farron Smith-Neme about what makes Merchant Ivory films so unique. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Farron Smith-Neme. I write an online column at Film Comment. I review movies on a freelance basis for the New York Post, and I'm the author of a novel called Missing Reels about cinephilia in New York in the 80s. Uh, this is Michael Koreski. I am editorial director at Film Society of Lincoln Center, um, contributor to Film Comment magazine, founder of Reverse Shot, and contributor to the Criterion Collection. Thank you for both coming here. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing Heritage Films and Merchant Ivory, because Howard's End has been recently restored and will be showing at the Film Society of Lincoln Center on... July 25th. Yes. So I guess let's start with Howard's End, and then maybe we can sort of work our way back to what Heritage Films meant for the British film industry in the 1980s and in the 1990s, because prior to that, things were kind of going downhill, let's say. First... You know, Farron, you've written very beautifully about Room with a View for us recently. What attracts you to these films? What do you find fascinating about them? Well, I think that under what, you know, is certainly an, an extremely beautiful surface for the most part, there is a, a great deal of broiling emotion. They put women and female performances front and center for the most part, and they delve into that in a very deep way. These are films that say um, things that might be sort of ordinary domestic concerns. In Howard's End, uh, an inheritance of a house are actually extremely important um, and you know can ripple out to cause a great deal of damage. Telling someone to leave their job at the wrong time turns out to have... Uh, enormous consequences. And I think uh, the fact that they're set in the past um, does give them a, a, a certain appeal. I mean, I will, I will say up front, I love the design of these movies. Um, they're movies to get lost in, for sure. But at the same time, they're very much about common humanity. I think they're, you know, not, even though the society that these people are living in is very different from the way we live now, their concerns and their lives are very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, it's not like these emotions or problems have gone away in any form. So, no. yeah. Well, the funny thing is, whenever I hear someone make disparaging remarks about, Merchant Ivory films or heritage films, British films of a certain quality, however people want to denigrate them, I get sort of upset because I feel like they're not actually watching them or thinking right. about them or paying attention to them. A lot of this obviously has to do with the source material. The Merchant Ivory films are almost uniformly based on, or their most popular films are based on classic literature. So there's a lot of psychological complexity to these books. So to to just dismiss them outright is to dismiss, in a sense, the source material. But um, what they're doing with these 
these beautifully mounted films is to get at a deeper spiritual, psychological complexity. There's nothing surfacy about them, especially Howard's End, which I have always found to be an incredibly resonant film, like you're saying, Farron. And nothing in that in that movie is reflective of only its time period. And I, I can't think of a more acutely realized or conceived film about class. I mean, it's it's really it it takes the book almost and I'm I'm rereading the book now. It's one of my favorite books, but I'm rereading it now as well. So it's fresh in my mind. Um, it takes it almost chapter by chapter, leaving out some crucial things perhaps to streamline. But in doing so, it really burrows deep into these characters. And I think Margaret Schlegel, played by Emma Thompson in her incredible star-making performance, is, is one of the most fascinating, complex heroines in any film I've ever seen. Absolutely. She's magnificent in this film. I mean, Margaret is, uh, she's sort of like the film itself in, in that on the surface, she may not appear to be particularly complex, but as you see her interacting throughout the film, you see the, the way her um, her deeply compassionate nature is something that um, Mrs. Wilcox, played by Vanessa Redgrave, immediately latches onto, you know, Mrs. Wilcox clearly knows that she's dying when she encounters Margaret Schlegel and then makes a point of befriending her later, it's because, you know, she alone, sort of out of everyone, perhaps even more so than Margaret's own sister, recognizes just what kind of character un- underlies, you know, this kind of pleasant exterior. And you you see that as you do in, in Merchant Ivory and a number of different scenes that were not much maybe seeming to happen, but everything is, is happening underneath what they're saying to one another. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Vanessa Redgrave's character, uh, Ruth Wilcox. She's the matriarch of the wealthiest family in the story. The, the family that owns this property, Howard's End, that becomes this metaphor for England and the inheritance of England. I love the character of Mrs. Wilcox because she so easily could have been this imperious, mm-hmm. um, sort of almost hateful, villainous character. She's, she's the, the wealthiest. Uh, well, actually, she, her, she herself married into money, so the, the book and the but film make house. that clear. But it's her house, so it could have been about a, you know, a family with an iron grip, which it is, but she kind of stays above it all. She has a beautiful, natural quality. She's actually connected to nature, which is one of the things that the film does really well in showing, and her performance is is great in conveying. Right. I mean, the opening image of the film is Mrs. Wilcox taking a stroll out in the garden. It's it's so beautiful the the way it's it's lit in the evening and she has on this dress that's sort of whispering a little bit behind her and she's reaching out to touch the flowers and things and then she passes and through the window you see her family the characters who you're going to meet later including her husband Mr. Wilcox played by Anthony Hopkins um, his his children and um, Helen played by Helena Bonham Carter um, they're inside having some some kind of a, a, a lively, bright discussion, and she's on the outside looking in, and yet you don't have the slightest sense that she feels excluded or anything else. She feels extremely happy. There's a, a beautiful peace and love in that scene, and it sets the rest of the movie up beautifully because, in a sense, they're all just trying to circle around back to that same feeling of you know warmth and community that's focused on this one house. 
And later in the film, um, there's uh, Emma Thompson when she, her character Margaret, when she finally makes it to Howard's End. There's some, there's a circuitous route <laughs> there. It, it, it takes um, it it takes it takes half the movie. It's like waiting for Lara to show up in the Preminger film. You know, Howard, Howard's End does not make an appearance for a while. Yeah, and when she's finally there, she begins to assume. Um, the role and even the movements of Ruth. So it looks like she's Im- almost imitating Vanessa Redgrave's movements and then the maid mistakes her for Ruth, which is a really beautiful moment because these two women are spiritually united where ev- everybody around them is petty. Everyone around yes. them is focused on money and they actually understand the beauty of nature and the connectedness of all things. Of course, only connect is the is the great tagline for Howard's End. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. Can we talk more about these other characters, these petty people? Because I think uh, it is it is very interesting. I think also what makes this film so fascinating because it is such a real depiction of what happens after someone dies. Because it is like what you think someone is going to do is not what they do. And then even people who would supposedly be united with each other really end up turning on each other or doing things to undermine each other. And it's it's like this pandemonium yeah. that is never really fully resolved until the very end. In 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 inheritance um, and and a death like can so often bring out the the worst in people. And, and Landers used to say that like fully half of her her letters that she was dealing with were people you know who were outraged about what they had or had not been left in a will. And this this movie is very much akin to that. There's that um, the I mean I, I think you you really start to see the uh, the pettiness or whatever after Mrs. Wilcox has died and they're having that meeting in um in. In the room, you know, with the the fireplace, discussing the hand scribbled note yes. that she had written while she was dying in the hospital, saying she wanted Margaret to have Howard's end, and uh, you can tell none of them want to honor this request of their mothers. So you're essentially watching um, uh, this scene of them trying to justify. <laughs> something that they know is wrong but they're all planning on doing anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Cause that's what's great is like there's this pretense of well let's pretend to discuss this fairly <laughs> like you know like that's like i think a, a subtle genius moment or a very real moment let's say in something that's supposedly so f- florid and fruity and whatnot. yeah and when dolly dolly who is the um rather frivolous daughter-in-law of With henry the and craziest Ruth, says, voice ever she says pencil doesn't count <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Everyone knows that. <laughs> um, I find all of those characters to be fascinating in their own way. I mean, some perhaps are more broadly drawn than others. Charles, who's the more villainous son. I think the film needs a strong antagonist, though. So that's good because Henry Wilcox, played by Anthony Hopkins so beautifully, um, is not really quite the film's villain at all. No, I mean, he even... really shifts positions a lot. No, he's the one who really perhaps changes the most. And um, it's it's really, it's quite moving to see his better nature gradually emerge through the movie. You know, it's like several times when he takes a giant step backwards but um you 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 feel for the guy you want him you know to to be the person that margaret thinks he is so and so beautifully troubling is it for the viewer that his quiet advancement as a person it works in tandem with margaret's coming into her own and her own Mm -hmm. voice so the more um emotionally aware he becomes she does too so she gets stronger and therefore rejects him. And so they're kind of always at odds. I mean, they do end up together at the end, but in, I don't know, 
there's something it's sort of a detente subtracted about it yeah, yeah it's like it's like a very english marriage if i may use that well, expression it is from the beginning i mean the, that that proposal <laughs> scene is about oh my his god english, <laughs> yes yeah uh, yeah, and then and then she ends it by walking up and and kissing him, and it's it's in context, it's quite shocking. It's yeah. so it's so forward, and he's clearly not expecting her to do it. She kisses him full on the mouth, but at the same time, um, when the the camera shows him as she's leaving, you can tell, you know, I liked that. Is it is it a problem that I liked that? Yeah. Which is fascinating because she's also a character. Margaret and Helen. The sisters are characters who believe themselves to be fueled by passion, uh-huh. right? They have yeah. pa- they have passions for art and literature and politics, and they they think themselves emancipated, and they're, they're very modern women. Yeah, they're this like very uh, Ian Forrester idea of what it means to be German. I think yeah. he talks about right. that a lot in yeah. the book. So yeah. much, so much, and it's like because they're passionate yeah. and like the art and the saber and all. They this see stuff. themselves as not British, right? They see them, and the Wilcoxes, of course, see themselves as British to the bone, and to yes. them, that's a compliment. That's exactly. Exactly. The ultimate. But it's interesting talking about all the ways that these characters are so complex and how it, it just continues to frustrate me that uh, that people would, I mean, I think this is a well-regarded film, obviously, but that people would lump it together in this generalized category because in the, in, in the 80s when, the, when Room of the View became such a success and put Merchant Ivory on the larger map, mm-hmm. the films were positioned in opposition to like The Beautiful Laundrette right. for a couple mm-hmm. of years. Films that were considered uh, like anti-Thatcher films. Yeah. So and these were like establishment films. Yeah, because they were, <laughs> because I guess people thought they were nostalgic. And there's always a, an element of nostalgia. I don't think that's always the worst thing. But these are these are films that take a pretty critical view of class. Yeah. Yes, yeah, for sure. To, to go to Helena Bonham Carter's character, um, Helen, who is younger than Margaret, more headstrong, more impulsive. Um, and um, she becomes connected with Leonard Bast, um, yes. who, you know, his problem in life is that he has um, an intellect and a yearning for beauty and for art that he has trouble finding an outlet for because he's working as a clerk in an insurance office and he has, you know, rather like of human bondage, chained himself to a, a, a nicer version of, uh, of, of the Betty Davis character. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, clearly the attraction in that relationship is, is, is sex. Um, but at the same time, he really wants something else in his life and the Schlegels want to to bring it to him but you know they're differing stations and priorities and really just the way that they think about life means that I- instead of helping him they wind up bringing calamity down on his head and they're attracted to him for an interesting reason I mean they I, they do think of themselves as social do-gooders right. but they also think that there is a sentimentality about nature and the world that they that they want to be part of. They see they see him as a, as a wanderer and as a spiritually connected person. Well, he because literally he, wanders because he likes to wander. He likes to walk. He likes to get out of the city and be amongst nature and flowers, which does, in a sense, connect him as well to um, to Margaret and to Ruth. But they also romanticize him a little too much, and in so yeah. doing, they as you're saying, they bring about his downfall. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's it's cl- classically you know like German and British romantic, isn't it? Those walks he takes through the fields, communing yeah. with nature. It's very, you know, like Goethe or Wordsworth. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And uh, you can see why they, they would think of him that way. And I love how he's just, 
he's practical about it. He walks because he wants to walk. Mm-hmm. He yeah. wants to get out of the city. He wants to clear his head. He wants to get away from everything. He doesn't have uh, any kind of literary ambitions. Right. But when they hear this, they have this this idea of him. And then of course, and then of course, when he actually does take a very long walk in nature, it is right before his downfall. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's like too much, you know. Like I was like, oh, I mean, yeah. I again, these it. movies, these movies are these movies are complicated. Very beautiful. You were touching before a little bit on Emma Thompson's performance. Can we talk about other players in this briefly? And then maybe we can transition to some other uh, Merchant Ivory joints. I mean, it's so sad for me because it's like watching Anthony Hopkins in this because it's like he gives when he's sitting after Ruth dies and he's just sitting and staring. And then Margaret comes over and like wakes him up from his like reverie, you know, just sort of like, oh, hello. Like it's such this beautiful moment. And it's like now it's just Tony Hopkins choose the scenery for 90 minutes. It's just it's like it's, this is why people consider him an amazing actor because he really was. Well, an interesting one thing to say about the performances in this movie is just I mean, they're all spectacular, but they really are getting at Forster's descriptions of them and language. And I find that kind of fascinating. And I, and I think that for some people, that's not interesting like if you're just adapting a book you're adapting a book no there's something amazing about getting at the intrinsic qualities of what an author is trying to do and um vanessa redgrave as ruth wilcox is acting the way this character is written i mean she's in in the book she's described as someone who um i can't remember the exact line it's a beautiful line the more she speaks the less you can see the outlines of things it's a really great line because she's always fading into the background and that's also a visual choice of the film but her choice to talk slowly, her choice to make these hand gestures. She almost seems like she's already a ghost in the film. Mm-hmm. And Anthony Hopkins, too. I mean, Henry character is completely imperious, and he doesn't believe in connecting. It's the only connect doesn't work for him. Yes. He, he says he <laughs> prefers concentration. So, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's Forster. Who, they're, they're brilliant actors, but it's almost like they're just diving into the book yeah i mean they 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 were they were given a great deal to to work with you know when you talk to actors you know you can have in all kinds of different scripts you can have scripts that you know give you only a a, a hint you know and it's it's your job to like fill everything in and in this case you know it's like they've sort of been handed you know a, a a very detailed outline and their job is is to breathe life into it you know i mean all of it's hard you know that doesn't make it any easier but they they really do it very beautifully I very much like Helena Bonham Carter in this mm-hmm. um, he- Helen is is kind of a a complicated character not unsympathetic but irritating she's um thoughtless you know she sort of breezes through the the movie and these you know very bohemian outfits forgetting umbrellas you know like unintentionally hurting leonard's feelings with a thoughtless joke at the wrong moment um impulsively barging in on a wedding um, and uh, so that's that, the, the the wedding crasher scene is is really, Oh, <laughs> is, yes. is 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 really quite marvelous, you know. Because she's like just steaming in with these two wildly in- inappropriate guests in tow, and and just simply not caring. And it's not even like uh, the upper crust British who would find that weird. If you can imagine, like bringing in <laughs> two total strangers to complain about someone losing their job at like your your best friend's wedding, you can see that it's, it's high school graduation <laughs> is also <laughs> a, a, inappropriate. A, absolutely. 
absolutely. Um, so, but you know, you can see this this social calamity looming on the horizon like a shipwreck, and yet you still feel for Helena Bonham Carter because you know it's it's it it is the goodness of her heart. She feels herself to have done a wrong, and she's doing her damnedest to rectify it. Yeah. So, I mean, I I really I don't know the name of the actress who plays Dolly, but I really quite like her because mm-hmm. Dolly is is a dingbat yes. and um, and seems quite selfish, and yet as the movie progresses, even she becomes somewhat more fleshed out until in the end when they're discussing the fate of Charlie and she has that lovely wistful line about, you know, maybe we should change our name, but, you know, we seem to, Wilcox seems to, to suit us. And it, they, they, they all have arcs, even, um, even the, the less likable ones have arcs and humanity and sympathy, which again is Forster, but the actors are very good at conveying that. Because you were talking about Helena Bonham Carter, maybe we can talk about A Room with a View a little bit as well, because you cited that as the being the big breakthrough. It was. I mean, they had been, Merchant Ivory had been making movies for at least 20 years at that point. I think that 1961 was that, yeah, that no. householder. Um, but Room of the View was, was a huge breakthrough for them. And they had just recently made The Bostonians, which is actually a very good Henry James adaptation with Vanessa Redgrave. And The Europeans, another Henry James film. Um, and many films made in India. Because, um, of course, Ismail Merchant, one of the two producers who we have actually haven't talked about. Ismail <laughs> Merchant and James Ivory. <laughs> is, is Merchant Ivory. Um, James Ivory from Berkeley and Ismail Merchant from Bombay or Mumbai. Um, and the woman who direct, who adapted oh Ruth this. Ruth Prower Javala they've been working together from the beginning yeah. because she, th- their first film was an adaptation of her of her book mm-hmm. and she, yes she writes these uh, almost all of these adaptations she's yeah. it, mm-hmm. it was really the three of them she's inc- really brilliant and but Room of the View just really broke through I, and I I love what you had to say about it Farron in your piece for film comment when you talk about which kind of ties into what I was saying at the beginning about these films being generalized or considered overly genteel like Room of the View is a film with full frontal male nudity (laughs) it's a film in which there's a very violent murder a stabbing witnessed by a 19 year old right then faints um these these movies aren't exactly what they appear to be and 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 I think um it's a little unfair yeah, I mean, room, room with a view is a, is about you know passion kind of breaking the confines of of your your stuffy existence, which I think you know it it is a very romantic notion, and I, I there is no doubt in my mind that that's a big part of what made it such a huge hit in the 1980s. It played the Paris and Manhattan for almost a year, um, you know, and uh, and and did very well for them, and I do think that's because you you don't often get really believable romances every 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 single part of it rings true and their happiness at the end feels earned and deserved you know they've come through and uh helped by uh by aunt charlotte maggie smith you know again this um room with a view is also full of of superb like smaller parts for for actresses um and maggie smith is is just marvelous and she starts out as one thing you know the stuffy enforcer of protocol you know the the one who can't even bring herself to talk to um unknown men in their 
their pension. And then at the end, she's the one who manages to, you know, sort of bring young love to fruition. And there's uh, there's that lovely scene of her, you know, right before the the closing shot of them, you know, in in the the window where she's reading in bed and she puts the book down, you know. So her existence has not changed, but yet, you know, she brought about something good. All of it is really very positive, and I think weirdly, a lot of people have trouble with positive. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> like if um, if 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 it's this kind of a, a a view of of life, it must somehow be less true, since we all know that this is a a cesspool of of, of pain and evil and uh, abomination. But I I I firmly believe that you know you you have to have you have to have both sides of the mask, right? You have to have comedy and tragedy right there's a, a place for happy endings <laughs> there's a there's a, a a place for joyous films like a room with the view and um, I don't think they had any idea this was going to be such a huge breakthrough for them but I think um, it, it it was in part because I was going to say the 80s were turbulent but you know when, when are things not turbulent you know right. people people are always kind of mentally prepared for a film like this and also branching off from what you're saying about happy endings being potentially subversive, I think that the film that they made, and I want to come back to Room of the View, but the film that they made directly after, a very subversive film, Morris, which is based on yes. A.M. Forster's great um, posthumously published novel about a gay romance, about two men falling in love um, at college and then going off their separate ways. Um, that movie has a happy ending. The two guys get together. And they, and they live together. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely subversive. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I, th I thought the same, not Merchant Ivory, but I thought the same thing about Carol. That was, that was a startling, subversive ending, you know, yeah. to, to, to suggest that, you know, there could be, you know, happiness and, and, and a future, you know, for, for these lovers. It's, it is, you know. It is, and to think that, that 30 years have passed almost between those two films and it's still considered subversive. That's, that's, I felt the same way at the end of yeah. Carol. I thought, well, well, wait a second. I thought they weren't going to get together. Isn't this about a tragic, <laughs> isn't this about tragic gay love? Oh, it's not. And yeah, Morris did it in 1987. And um, of course, it was not a hit the way, or, I mean, Carol, I guess you can't really call it a hit, but it, it was widely accepted right. and, and, and appreciated, whereas when Morris came out, people really didn't know what to make of it. They said, well, are these the guys who did Room of the View? I want to see more Room of the View. I, you yeah. know, they, they, they make things on such a shoestring that I think Morris did all right for them, but it was it was certainly not the massive hit that Room with a View was. Um, and it gave us, uh, it was actually maybe the first major role for Hugh Grant. Yeah. I yeah. believe he'd maybe been in some things before, but I, that, that's a pretty sizable leading role for Young in his career. And of course, Rupert Graves. Yes. Everybody's ultimate crush. Every gay man's <laughs> ultimate crush of a certain age who is full frontal in from the view. And also a, gr a great connection to the, to the great British film Weekend. Yes. <laughs> Andrew yes. Hayes film in which one of the characters uh, of, of this age, of my age, uh, talks about his first sexual experience growing up having a video a vhs of a room with a view and pausing it right <laughs> at the moment where you can see rupert graves penis it's a seminal moment yeah. as they say <laughs> that's that's such a beautiful scene though they're they're all like sort of in that that pond you know and and then um and then one of them kind of does like a little tentative splash and then before you know it they're all like toddlers you know <laughs> it's like splashing the hell out of one another and then they're running around doing the 
these, you know, like wild Indian whoops or whatever. <laughs> it's such joy, that mm-hmm. scene that, you know, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it's it's the kind of nude scene that, you know, you could take your mother to and you wouldn't be that I- embarrassed because it's, you know, it's like playful. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it's- I specifically remember my mother talking about that scene. She loved that scene. <laughs> And she would say, this is just, it's so wonderful. You don't get to see men just being men and they're out in nature and it's so great. Yeah, I think people just were 100% on board with that scene. What's interesting about it though, I do feel like it skirts the line a little bit between complete PG rated, it is PG, PG rated um, freedom, men in nature, men being themselves. And there's a little bit of homoeroticism there too. There's no question. Oh no, no, no no question at all. Yeah, yeah. You can kind of take what you want from it. They're free with their natures, but they're they're free with their hands too. They're kind of all over each other. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's something really um, delightful. And there's never been anything quite like that scene in a mainstream film. Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely a surprise. (laughs) uh, um, I think people kind of went to it thinking, you know, it was going to be one thing, Forster, and then you, you, you get that. It was, it was very different. And also um, one of the witnesses of that, not taking part in that, but uh, the, one of the witnesses of that scene, Daniel Day-Lewis, who we should talk about, yeah. um, fascinatingly, A Room of the View and My Beautiful Laundrette, in which Daniel Day-Lewis has a very different role, <laughs> uh, came out the same day in New York. Yeah. Know, they, they, and so there were these New York Times pieces about this exciting new actor, because you know, he plays a gay skinhead punk in My Beautiful Laundrette, and he plays a mustachioed, very, very uptight, sort of not really love yeah, interest. His name is Cecil Vise. You know? <laughs> like, I mean, how much more explicit could you get about his nature? His, his collars, you know, they, they, they seem to reach up like almost to his eyebrows. And, um, uh, he too gets his moment, though, after Helena Bonham Carter breaks off their engagement, you know, and he's like, because I wouldn't play tennis with Freddie. <laughs> and he ha- has that, that moment in the hall I mean, I don't, I don't think it's it's in the book, but uh, he's just he's putting his you know perfect little tight shoes back on, and he's heartbroken. You can tell, and that's that's very much something that Daniel Day Lewis was able to bring to the character. He's snobbish. He deliberately tries to embarrass people on more than one occasion. Yet you feel for the guy. You really do. Also because you suspect he's not going to get the girl (laughs) well i I think that's an interesting thread throughout their films the very starched collar male yeah who in a sense the film is everything is working he's working against everything in the film and any kind of emotional connection any kind of progress but the film has this compassion. All the films have compassion for these people. I mean, you can see it in Daniel Day-Lewis in Room of the View. To a certain extent, Hugh Grant in Morris, because he decides to go the correct way of society. Mm-hmm. And he, he sacrifices love. Henry Wilcox in Howard's End. And, of course, Mr. Stevens in The Remains of the Day. Uh, which yes. <laughs> is, I mean, talk about an exquisite performance. I mean, that both of them, Anthony Hopkins yeah. and Emma Thompson. But, I mean, I, I don't think there's ever been a more heartbreaking portrait of complete emotional repression than Anthony Hopkins in The Remains of the Day. This is a quotation, not an endorsement. When Anthony Hopkins was on Inside the Actor's Studio and he talked about preparing for that role and he spent time with a butler, an actual butler, and the guy said, you know, the room should feel emptier with you in it. And that's sort of like, for me, that's like that performance in a nutshell. Like he totally achieved it. 
Yeah, I mean, the the scene where she goes to, to tell him that his father has just died and he goes back to waiting on the the people in the uh, in the banquet. It, it's <laughs> I mean, it's just it's it's gut wrenching because yeah. um, I mean, what, what Hopkins does is is so subtle. You can tell from his face what's going on. A, a theme throughout the movie is is people asking him if he's quite all right, mm-hmm. you know, and usually when they're saying that to him, it's not that easy to tell that there is anything wrong, but there's something just enough off, you know, or more like he's part of the furniture. So if he's moved to one inch to the right or to the left, they can spot it. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. It, it's it's an extraordinary performance, and their their farewell at at the bus stop is. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so. And and having Emma Thompson in the role of Miss um, Kenton, who is the 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 maid, it's because it's a non it's a non the, the, the housekeeper, yeah, yeah, the <laughs> so, housekeeper. Yeah. Um, she's the head housekeeper. Yeah, right? exactly. So um, she's almost, she's like just below him mm, in the hierarchy. Mm, yeah. And it's it's of course the film's about like waiting for any kind of emotional expression and of love to 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 blossom and it doesn't you know really happen, <laughs> which makes it tough. But um, Emma Thompson, it has, just has to be said, like has the most perfect face of empathy of any actor. That's why she's so particularly great in these two roles, I think, mm-hmm, Margaret yeah. and and Miss Kenton. She is constantly looking at someone else and surveying them and and finding some way to love them even though they clearly can't love her back in a way that they want to. I remember throughout the 90s I was constantly haunted by Emma Thompson. I'm still just, I, I'm a huge Emma Thompson fan, but I mean, just looking at her face in the remains of the day, she doesn't really have... For a leading role, it's surprisingly few scenes, mm-hmm. yeah. but she feels like she presides over the whole thing. It's her gaze that kind of mirrors ours. We're looking at him and thinking, how can we save this soul? Yeah, it's, you know, when she comes back to tell him that she's been engaged and um, he's saying, all right, you know, and he's like turning around to, to leave and she's so frustrated and so desperate for any kind of a reaction from him that she starts telling him that, you know, she and her fiancé would mock him behind their back, you know, and she says, you know, we used to to particularly, you know, laugh at, at, at how you would pinch your nose when you were putting pepper on, on, on your food and, um, and there's the most extraordinary exchange of glances, you know, you, you look at him and I'm damned if I could figure out exactly what happens to his face, but you can see how hurt he is. Mm-hmm. And then the the camera goes back to her, and you can see that she knows it, you know, and, and she feels terrible. And then he turns and he goes again. I mean, I think um, perhaps one reason why James Ivory um, is not much discussed as a director is that so so much of his art is focusing on, on capturing the actors from precisely the right angle at exactly the right moment um, to give their performances the full emotional force. And, you know, why I, I think that's an essential quality for a great director. It's not one that's going to get you huge formal accolades. <laughs> so. Right, and, and, and the more we talk about these films, it's so great to talk about these films because the more we talk about them, the more I realize we're talking about them like we're talking about great books. Yeah. Yeah. And there's actually nothing wrong with that, right? No. I mean, there's something to be said for a movie that can capture that 
the 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 intense connection that you make to characters. I mean, you think of the great, yeah, you think of the great works of art, uh, of great works of literature you've mm-hmm. read, whether it's Middlemarch or The Portrait of a Lady. Often, I mean, these are extraordinary works of art, but often you talk about these amazing characters. Right? It's like mm-hmm. a Madame Merle. Uh, you want to talk about these people forever, and it's how the writer then gets you to think about that person. A filmmaker is doing the same thing if they're doing it well. And I think James Ivory cares very much about that kind of um, connection with the audience. So I love talking about these people from these movies. We talk about them like we know them, like they're real people, like they're friends of ours. So then you you have to come to terms with the fact that these are constructed, like you're saying, that camera has to be in the right place. Mm-hmm. The cut has to happen at the exact right moment for you to buy into this as a reality yeah i mean and and he he also he also does know when to take the camera away from the actors and give you the sweep of what's happening um in remains of the day i was also struck with the um the scene of uh the guy who's obviously some kind of oswald mosley figure um arriving with his retinue of of black shirts and how um you know sort of you i mean it could be such a thudding, obvious. Oh, here come the black shirts, you know, and it, which it, it usually it, is. Yeah, and 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 it, and instead, you kind of gradually discover it. You know, his camera is over here on the entrance, and they're kind of filing in as they're getting out of the car. And basically, you know, like only as they kind of turn, do you realize who they are. Um, he's somebody who seems to sort of deliberately turn away from like grand sweeping things for the most part and then when he gives you one like the pull away shot at um at the end of uh of remains of the day or um the um a, a, a similar one at, at the end of howard's end you know with with helena bonham carter and her child and you know the the family unit kind of reestablished. so when he does do that it it hits you with the full force you haven't been you know getting a ton of those throughout um it's true he gives the, he gives you just enough and um I, I was i'm still thinking about the scene you're describing in remains of the day when she tells him about her engagement um and how yes his response is it, it's almost like it's like a kuleshov effect kind of thing right yeah does he actually do anything with his face right. <laughs> yeah. or are we reading into it? And that's actually the beauty of cinema too, yes. is that on the page there will be some description of his, of, of some form of interior monologue or interior understanding. Yeah. But on screen, you, you have only your empathy to understand things. So if you see a, this response of Anthony Hopkins, you can say, oh, he, that's a pained expression, but he actually might not have done anything at all with his face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe he parted his lips, maybe he flared his nostrils. Um, but it's 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 very intrinsically cinematic. It's it's only cinematic. And and he's also in in that scene. He's he's um she's she's just come in from the back and she's sort of at the end of a hall and he's at the other end of a hall. So they're not playing it close. They're playing it at a distance. And the camera is constantly reminding you that there's a physical difference between the two of them. He's not really moving in close on on, on their faces. It's like you're standing in the middle of that hall and turning to look at him and then turning to to look at the other. And and it gives you the full impact of, of that scene quite beautifully. And which is also a testament to the importance and the brilliance with which they wield their production design. Because, I mean, Remains of the Day is perhaps the pinnacle of this. I, 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 Howard's End is, is my favorite. Mm-hmm. Remains of the, in terms of just using wallpaper and furniture and costumes to 
communicates something uh, psychological, I think Remains of the Day is just the ultimate. I think that it's, when you think of that film, you think of that hallway, you think of shadows, you think of that little room where they, where they talk at the end of the night in front of the fireplace, you think of that amazing blue wallpaper in front of the staircase where you see them silhouetted. I mean, it's just like this world is closing in, closing in, closing in. So to think or say, as many critics have over the years, that they're just making wallpaper movies or making films where, you know, where they're fetishizing production design is, mm-hmm. is, is quite sim- simplifying things. To go back to Howard's End, when I was re-watching it for this, I was... Um, I was really struck by the uh, the the how impeccable the costume designs were. Um, you you have like a pretty wide uh, assortment uh, of characters there. So you have um, you have Helen, who's always got like some kind of scarf draped around her. Her hair is a little wild. Um, you know she's she's wearing long beaded necklaces. And you have Margaret, whose outfits kind of transition mm-hmm. right, um, and uh, who who goes from being a little more bohemian to you know, after she marries Wilcox or whatever, looking a little more neat and put together. Um, you have um, I, I was I really liked um, Leonard Bast's suit. Um, it, it's it's black, but it's faded. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it looks like it, it looks like he washes it all the time. He's or, he's 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 only got one, and that's that's the kind of detail that sets them apart they're not merely trying to make things look pretty and at at times they'll do things you know like bottom carter's hair is out of control there's 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 several shots where she's supposed to be really concerned or or something and she's like Mm hollow-eyed and you know like, like vacant looking um and uh there's the very buttoned up children of henry you know and uh Dolly's costumes are also kind of daffy looking. It's it's so well thought out. And it, it may not register with a lot of people. I tend to notice costumes, but I, I, I firmly believe that it's it's contributing to your overall impression of them. You know, you yeah. you may you're you're thinking Leonard doesn't have a lot of money even before he kind of opens his mouth, and you may not know why, but part of it is what he's wearing. Yeah. And to just piggyback on the Helen Bottom Carter hair thing, she has the most hair. <laughs> she has the most hair. And it's always it's always so expressive because I think the scene where you're talking you're referring to where she's like very hollow eyed and it's like they're in Devon and it's they're supposed to be on vacation and it's sort of raining. It's sort of Americans would use an umbrella because they're British. They don't mind. They're just sort of wrapped up and she, her hair is just so crazy. And this is right after um, Henry has given this speech. Well, you know, the poor, poor. That's just how it is. <laughs> Suck it up, whatever. I don't care. And she's just furious. Yeah. She's absolutely furious. And it's in every part of her body that is visible. Like, yeah. and, and part of that is her hair. And I love it. I always yeah, no. love it. And then when she turns and she walks back in, like, even there's, there's, a, there's anger even in the way that mass of hair is swinging yes. behind her. <laughs> <laughs> As a passionate woman with messy hair, I relate. <laughs> Big ups. Helena Bottom Carter in the 80s and early 90s. Anyway, um, well, I guess, is there anything else you guys wanted to mention before we wrap it up? I mean, all I'll say without going into any depth is that though we've been focusing on these four films, they've made a lot of really wonderful films. Yeah. I actually really like this film. They did A Soldier's Daughter Never Cries, which is not one of their heritage films. Um, that is a, a beautiful movie with a uh, young Lily Sobieski, who you may have forgotten about. I highly recommend that. Their last film, The White Countess, is actually very interesting with I, Ray I, Fiennes. I, I read the book. I have not, I have not seen that film. One of their 
earliest films that I really like a lot is Shakespeare Walla. Um, I have a weakness for kind of backstage stories, and and this one had a, a lot of uh, a lot of teeming fun about it. Um, I saw a, an actress who had worked on it. She was talking about how um, I think a Merchant himself wound up in one shot, you know, because she's like, well, you, you know how he is. He, he would say, you know, come along, darling, you know, we're, we're, we're going to film this scene and you can be in, in, in the background. And she's like, and of course, he did, just didn't want to pay them anything. So they didn't show up. <laughs> and so he's, he's like in this balcony scene. But that's a really very good movie, black and white from early in their career. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there that's worth uh, No, I, there's there's like, you know, 30 or 40 years of, of, of work. There are some movies of theirs that I did not enjoy as much. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's very little that's entirely without interest. So, Before we close, uh, in the spirit of last 10 films, can we each go around and say a film that we've seen recently that we liked? Because it's been mentioned so many times on this podcast, I recently rewatched Bamboozled, which is a film I had not seen since I was 18. And I have to say, I generally movies that I've only seen once from, you know, that period in my life, I do not remember. But I remember a lot of images from this very vividly. It's one of the few Spike Lee films that does not have some sort of a unfortunate commentary on women's sexuality <laughs> let's say let's just put it like that um and i think it what it's saying is i think it's a very brilliant film and um yeah it's a it's it's unfortunately not really available on streaming or to buy anywhere so i think that's quite the shame and um also anecdotally uh when watching it i was like really struck by the white tv executive who has a black wife and feels like he can say anything about black people to black people or just sort of appropriate this culture and i was like that's kind of a stretch and then i was like oh wait bill de blasio cp time joke no it's real so anyway that's true um i love bamboozled i saw it so many times when it came out I, for some reason i just couldn't stop watching it i was so oh, weird I, I went to see <laughs> it in the theater like, three not, times it doesn't have a you know I, I i can see going to see a room with a view like 20 times but like, but, i don't know bamboozled is bam, very bamboozled a pretty acid movie yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah there was something about the, i was in college there was something about the power of it i just couldn't get enough and then i wanted to tell friends to see it. of course everyone hated it so I, it became a cause i kept yeah. bringing people something that i saw recently there is a uh, a very interesting movie coming out called Moonlight, it's directed by Barry Jenkins, who directed Medicine for Melancholy. Um, it'll play at fall festivals, I assume. Um, and it is the only film that I've seen of its kind, which is a high production value, I would say modestly, but well-budgeted movie with a lot of publicity behind it that will actually open on many screens that is about um, a young African-American gay man growing up and it's very powerful. Since since you went a, a little ways back for Bamboozled, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go way back for mine because um, I, I, I had not seen Fort Apache in, a, in 20 years and Turner Classic Movies is running a 100 Westerns festival this month and they did a, a John Ford night and I just kind of got 
caught up in it. And it's so magnificent. (laughs) I mean, pictorially, every single shot, so beautiful. And it's an extraordinarily complex film in what it's saying about the relationship with the Apaches um, in in Henry Fonda's character and his kind of stiff-necked, rigid worship of authority. In some ways, his character... Owen oh, Thursday is, is almost kind of a dry run for Once Upon a Time in the West. The final confrontation with its like swirling clouds of, of dust, there's this one knot of people and you just see the, the Apaches swoosh past them, you know, and they're like hidden in the dust. Who but Ford would like snuff out like a whole group of his main characters with that kind of shot? Sometimes it's really wonderful to go back and discover an old friend. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you both for coming. This was really wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.